Lord Jesus, we sing that out. We love you. And yet I know for myself, there's oftentimes I fail in loving you. And so we just ask for your help. Help us to love you more. Help us to prioritize you more. Would you just continue to be the focus, calling us back to you, drawing us back to you, pulling those things out of our life that are distractions, that are harmful, that are, that are not pointing us towards you. Lord, we do love you. And we are so thankful, uh, like that first song, that you shed your blood for us, your perfect sacrifice that one died for all. And Lord, so we worship you and we praise you. We know all heaven worships you and and praises you. You are the eternal king. You reign above all. And Lord, we thank you and continue to guide us through. Lord, this has been one long year, one long season, and many are weary, frustrated, discouraged. And Lord, just give us renewed hope a renewed sense of peace, a a renewed reminder that you're in control of all things, even when it doesn't look like it to our eye. Or that you are working, you have a plan, all things will work together for good, for those that love you and are called according to your purposes. Lord, and you always, always take things that are evil and broken and you turn them for redemption for your purposes, Lord. So give us a trust in that. Let us hear from you today. Speak to us where each of us are uniquely and where we are as a church. Would you speak, Lord? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome here. You can be seated here in the room. Welcome at home. If you're standing up, you can be seated at home. Uh, Glad you're tuning in. And uh, just want to just say a little, you know, give a little love, a little shout out to the team yesterday serving the grab and go breakfast. I talked to Lynette, our outreach deacon, and she said there was great enthusiasm, team working hard. And remember, this was a partner event with the Bridge Church. So serving together, reaching out. And so the word still has to get out about that we're doing the breakfast. So there wasn't a lot of people coming. But the one account Lynette told me is that someone living nearby was living in a garage and they were so grateful for the hot meal. And then a bunch of it went down to base camp and some of it over to Sunset Pond. So it's a beautiful first weekend and we just want to serve, love on this community. The next one will be the last Saturday in March. So we're doing these, trying three of them the last Saturdays of the month. So we'll talk more about it, but just appreciate the serving, the love, we want this community to know that Jesus loves them, we love them, and so I just appreciate that effort as we're focusing right now on the love of Christ and extending the love of Christ, especially as we are leading towards Easter. Our Easter theme is the greatest love, and so that's what we want our community and our world to know, the greatest love is the love of Christ. So um, we're going to jump in here today, and we've been talking about, I've been trying to help give us some cultural context to the world we are finding ourselves here in the West. Uh, One of my key sources is this podcast called This Cultural Moment. It's been super helpful, super insightful. It's two pastors that lead it. One is named uh, John Mark Comer. He's in Portland, Oregon. The other one is Mark Sayers, who is in... Sydney, Australia. So they're both in very 
you know, progressive cities, and they're just describing what are we seeing, what are we experiencing in this cultural moment. Um, and, and so what we've been talking about here is the reality that we live in a post-Christian secular culture. Post-Christian, meaning is that our culture has moved away from, moved beyond the Judeo-Christian foundations, that it's no longer desired. In fact, post-Christian culture's desire is for deconstruction, to remove, to tear down, to get those away, to not even be associated with them. Secular culture is the idea that any kind of religious instruction, information, religious authority should be removed, have no place in public life. And so those are the realities of what you feel when you go to school, what you feel when you interact in the public, what you feel when you look on the news, that many of the things that we hold deeply valuable, that we believe are from God, are rejected. There's a hostility towards them. And so uh, but what I want us to talk about today comes, if, you, if you're interested in looking, it's in this podcast, Season 3, Episode 3, if you want to listen to it yourself. But they describe systems that are needed for human flourishing. Systems that are needed for human flourishing. What makes humans work and work correctly, work properly? And so they've described three systems that are needed. So I'll show you the systems and then talk about how we're finding them in our culture and then how Christ fulfills them. So these are three systems they talked about that humans need for flourishing. We need freedom. To some point, we need freedom to live, to move around, to express ourselves. Uh, Think of places that don't have it. Think if you were born in North Korea. Massive oppression. No freedom to do anything, to work how you want, to be who you want, to marry where you want, to believe what you want. So it's massive oppression. There's no freedom there. But humans also, we need meaning. There is this ongoing thing living in the heart of humans for meaning, for purpose. There's this constant questing. Why are we here? What is our purpose? What am I here for? What am I here to do? What is my life going to be about? There's this deep inbuilt, we believe from God, a desire for your life to matter, to count. And so there's a, so a human's flourishing needs meaning. So we need freedom, we need meaning, and then finally we need community or relationships. You can put it either way. We need community. We need people in your life who love you, who care about you, that you love them and care about you, interact, you relate, you need family, friends. We need community. And when God created the world and he just made Adam, and Adam was hanging out with the animals, nothing was fitting for him, it was the only thing in the beginning of Genesis that God said was not good. It was not good that the man should be alone. It was not good. And so God made us for relationship. He made Eve. He made another human, and they had a family. We are designed by God for community. So these three systems need input. We need to have a certain amount of freedom to live, to act, to move, to, to be. We need meaning. We need a reason that we exist and we live for, and we need community. Now, in the post-Christian West, 
these systems are out of whack. And so here's what it looks like in the West. The freedom system is overflowing. It's just overflowing. Because the post-Christian culture, the self, the individual, basically is God. Do whatever you want, whenever you want. No one can or should tell you no. What's considered immoral in our culture is for someone else to impose their view. For someone else to say no to your preferences, to your desires. Your individual authority is God. You are God. Do what you want. Feel what you want. Believe what you want. Become what you want. Unlimited freedom. And that's where all the laws are going. Anything that would restrict and would say no is disappearing. But interestingly, as unlimited freedom is the goal, you can't have meaning or community. It erodes those. And so while we're in this time where humans are given more and more and more freedom and autonomy, there's more and more anxiety. There's more and more depression. There's more and more emotional problems. And there is this sense that you have no purpose. If your whole goal is to live for you, fulfill whatever you want, whatever you desire, it becomes empty. It becomes enslaving. It becomes a trap. And so we have... Suicide rates climbing, anxiety, choice anxiety climbing. And this, if your whole goal is to live for yourself, consume, please yourself, there's no meaning there. You're not living for anything that counts. People feel that. And so that's some of the rush. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Some of the rush to political causes. Because there's such a quest for meaning. And so you'll throw all of it into some kind of political cause. And they're getting more extreme and, and more angry. Because you're putting into those causes your strong desire for meaning. And if anybody blocks that, well, they're blocking your freedom and it creates anger. But here's the other thing. If your whole life is built on your freedom, you cannot have community. Can you have a friendship when it's all about the other person? You have to give a little bit, right? Sometimes they get to pick the restaurant. Sometimes they get to hold the remote, right? If it's all you and all about you, you kill relationships. You can't have a marriage when it's only about one person. You starve it. You choke it out. It creates resentment. You can't have a team when it's all about one person. Sports proves this all the time. An NBA team can have the greatest player, but everybody hates them and they lose. And then you can have a team with mediocre players, but they play for each other and they play together and they win the championship, even though as individuals, they're not as good. But if it's for the team, if it's for one another, if they limit their freedom for accolades, there's success. And so it's this thing where our culture is desperately seeking human flourishing, but all the energy is going into individual freedom. And so it's actually choking. It's choking out ability for meaning. Because if your life is just about you and consuming, you never get there. You never get there. So something that's a little more balanced, as you limit your freedom, your ability for meaning and community start to fill up. If you say, I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to get up on a Saturday morning early and come cook breakfast for people I don't know. You've given up a lot of freedoms to sleep in, to lay in your pajamas, to watch TV, to drink coffee. You've limited your freedom to choose those things, but you're living for the good of someone else. You're living for the glory of Christ. 
And what Lynette told me is some of the best part was the people were enjoying working together. So as they limited their Saturday morning freedom to do whatever they feel like, wearing whatever they feel like, their sense of meaning rose, their sense of community rose. But if it's only about me and I want and I need to do it and you don't have any of them, it doesn't lead to human flourishing. And so we know this in a relationship, right? Any kind of marriage, if you limit yourself, the chance for your community goes up. If you make it all about you, you starve it out. And, right, this shouldn't be new, right? This isn't new. What did Jesus say? If you want to find your life, you will lose it, right? The greatest is the servant of all. And so Jesus has been saying this. This has been out there for thousands of years. But as we've, you know, cut ourselves off, as our culture cuts itself off from anything authoritative from God, it cuts itself off from any hope for human meaning. And so Christ is actually the greatest picture of this. Who limited their freedom more than Jesus? We see this in Philippians 2. It says, Jesus, though being in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking in the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You can't limit your freedom any more than letting someone nail you to a cross. And he didn't have to, right? So he completely emptied himself. And then what does it say at the end of that passage? It says, as a result of this, he's been given the name above every name. Is there anything more meaningful than the resurrected Christ? Is there anyone with more glory, more accolades than Christ? So he has, by sacrificing himself, his meaning is off the charts. And his community is off the charts. It says in, uh, you can see in Revelation 7, right, there are people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation worshiping around the throne of God forever. He has an eternal community with him. And so Christ, who is, the, is God, is also the perfect human, the exalted God, limited all his freedom. Now he has you know, meaning off the chart, community off the chart, and now he's actually the exalted king of kings. He's free, he's free right? He can do anything. He's, Christ. he's the reigning Lord. So what caused Christ to limit his freedom, to do this? And this is what we've been talking about, his absolute love and devotion to the Father. Right? He completely loved and submitted himself to the Father's will and his absolute love for humanity who had fallen. Right? Because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, Christ died for us. It was because of his great love with which he loved us. And so the whole thing we've been angling towards, our post-Christian culture is in a mess. It continues to think the freedom bucket's the only one that matters. And so people are more anxious, more hurting, more disconnected. They have less community. Their lives don't count for anything because it's only about them. And, so, and they're rejecting. But Christ is actually the answer to all of that. And the love of Christ is the answer to all of that. And so that's what we've been talking about. How do we live in the love of Christ and extend the love of Christ? Because this culture is going to long for it. When they hit the wall, when it falls apart, when they're, it will speak. It might not want it on a public or a corporate sense, but individuals are going to begin hungering. 
So that's what we've been talking about. So we've been looking at love, and we've been in 1 Corinthians 13. So if you want to open up a Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to look at these, uh, I guess it would be three verses, 4, 5, and 6. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, 5, and 6, we've been looking at love as really defined. Paul said he'll show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way to live is this way of love, and he's been expressing it. What it is, what it means. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to look at verses 4, 5, and 6. You got, you got a Bible, pull it out. You got a device, turn it on. Turn off all your other apps, notifications, social media posts. Then look at the Bible. Okay, here we go. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. This is what we saw last week. Love is patient and kind. We focused on that last week. Anybody find any testing this last week to test your patience and kindness? Lots of irritating things happening to you. Lots of, you know, (laughs) letters from the IRS. Something just, whatever it is. Okay. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. All right, let's, let's look at these. I've got some definitions here, and we'll just kind of walk, walk through what these mean a little bit, and then we'll talk about how to get them going. So all these words, you know, you can read words. You probably know what they all mean, but I'll just show you. Envy is to strongly desire what someone else has even to the point of resenting the possessor. So it's not just that you wish you had that thing or that truck or those new shoes or that trip to the restaurant, whatever it is. You're, you're resentful that they have it. And I hope they get a stomach ache and that the transmission falls out of the bottom of that thing. And what, you know, like you're resentful that they have it. So that's envy. It's not just that you want it. You, you secretly wish their demise for them having it. Boasting is just to brag. Like this, this is what social media is built on, right? To, you turn it on, I want that, I want that vacation, I want that trip. Or, or it's check out my vacation, check out my new shoes, check, right? This is the whole thing. This is why it's so hard, right? It's filled with this. The next ones are arrogant and rude. Arrogant is to be puffed up, to be proud, to be haughty. Haughty is idea, not only you're feeling pretty good about yourself as you look down on others, so... Arrogant is kind of the mindset and boasting is you expressing it. Those kind of go together. And rude has to do with your actions that are either shameful, indecent, dishonorable, really just anything inappropriate. It's just completely inappropriate. So love is not puffed up and it's not shameful, indecent, inappropriate. Love does not insist on its own way. It means to seek it or to demand it. Think of that for that, that initial thing we looked at. Total self-freedom. You don't have love if everything is must be my way and about me. And then we have, it's not irritable. Easily provoked, stir to anger, to be incensed, right? Right When someone stands right in front of the TV at the moment of the touchdown about to win the game, get out of the way! That's irritable. I only heard that about other people's homes. So, uh, or resentful. This is, a, this is an accounting word. 
keeping a ledger, counting, keeping track of a bad or a harm done. Some of the uh, versions will say love does not keep a record of wrongs, right? It keep a, a, a list. And then love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It's, love does not celebrate. The word for wrongdoing is the word for unrighteousness or injustice. That love doesn't celebrate things that are unrighteous, that are unlawful, or that are unjust, that are unfair. It doesn't celebrate that. Which again, <laughs> that's what the world we're living in. It celebrates things that are evil and wicked and, and creates laws to make them happen. There's not love in that. And love does not and love rejoices with the truth. To celebrate what is true, what is right, what is fair, what is real. So you read those lists, it feels completely opposite of the desires of a post Christian secular culture. Right? How can love fit in there when that's what our culture is fueled right now with envy, boasting, arrogance, inappropriate, celebrating unrighteousness? They don't even know the word truth. It's just completely opposite of the culture we live in. But if we're honest, if I'm honest, it's also completely opposite of me. If you just leave me alone to live my life, probably in a week I could probably hit all of those. I could be envious of something, could be boasting of something I did, could have check me out, I did that thing awesome. Maybe I don't say it out loud, but these could be thoughts. right? It could be, uh, what are the other ones, Uh, rude, you know, you can... Tell some inappropriate joke, laugh at it, insist on its own way. I want to do it how I want to do it. I can be irritable or resentful, right? I, all of these I fail at. Anybody with me? Yeah, it's, you read this list and you go, well, great, I'm out. You know, like, well, I'm, I must not love. And that's why we all need Christ's unbelievable love. Just saying, hey, love and love like this will never get there. It'll just be one more thing that crushes us. But if we see Christ's love and his love is in us and filling us, then we, we need to receive it and we also need to share it. So there's our main point. We all need Christ's unbelievable love. So I was working through this this week and... You know, I got the definitions. I'm like, yeah, but what do I do with this? I could just tell people love like that, but I just... What, what am I going to say about this? What more could be said? And, and late Thursday, I felt like the Lord said, here, show them how Jesus fulfilled all of these. Like, oh, why didn't I think of that? So what's amazing is if you look at the accounts of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, he experiences these against him, and he doesn't return any of them. Christ going to the cross because of the great love with which he loved us, experiences the opposite of all these and doesn't do them. So I want us to walk through, I'm going to show you all these adjectives that were done to Christ and he doesn't do them back in his arrest, trial, crucifixion. It's pretty amazing when you look at the story. So the first one we saw, love does not envy. Love does not envy. If you pop over to Mark, we're going to be in Mark 15 to start. If you pop over to Mark 15, Mark 15, we're going to do a verse, start with verses 8 to 10. We're going to kind of jump a little bit back and forth in the story so that I could keep the words in order. Love does not envy. If you go to Mark 15, verse 8, Jesus has been 
arrested. He is being delivered over to the governor Pilate of the region they're in, of Jerusalem. If you look at 15 verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? So the usual thing is at the feast, their tradition was that they got to have one prisoner released. This kind of seems like a weird thing to do. Like, sure, let's release a criminal. It's, it's a holiday. It's Christmas. Go ahead. But anyways, that's what they did. Uh, so you want me to release the king of the Jews? You want me to let Jesus go? Verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Jesus was delivered up and arrested because they were jealous of him. Isn't that something? Next one, love does not boast. So we saw that they were envious. If you go to verse 15, just go back up to verse 1. We're going to look at 1 through 5 and see that love does not boast. 15 verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Right, who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Was there ever a moment to boast right there? Who are you? Well, I'm the eternal son of God. I was there at creation. I spoke things into being. I, I was the uh, angel delivering. I went out in front of the children of Israel. I routed the Egyptians. I've been, I was there when you were born, Pilate. Uh, all authority will go to me. I will reign forever. Every knee will bow. Any further questions? Right? But what does he say? He just, he just says, you said it. And then quiet. They're accusing him. I mean, someone's in your face accusing you, accusing you, and you did, don't you want to defend yourself and say, yeah, but don't you know who I am and don't you know what I've done? And Pilate was amazed that he just stood there quiet. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Arrogant, right, haughty, puffed up, rude is just inappropriate, terrible behavior. So we go down to Mark 15, go down to verse 16. Look down at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Is there some arrogance there that you would toy with the Son of God like a cat toys with a half-dead mouse? They're going to beat him. They're going to mock him. Is that, I mean, rude is hardly the adjective for it. But how, I mean, they're just taunting. Let's get the whole group in. You know, there's a bunch of, a bunch of guys gathered around, just beating on him, spitting on him, and Jesus does nothing. Just takes it all. Because love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Even though with just a thought of his mind, he could have just killed them all. He could have blown them against the wall. 
right? He could have revealed his glory and they would melt, but he doesn't. Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. We're going to jump over to Luke. For the rest of these ones we look at will be in Luke. Luke uh, 22. Go to Luke 22. We'll kind of, the next couple will be right there, so you don't have to jump too far. Luke 22, 41. Luke 22, 41. And we're looking at love does not insist on its own way. Luke twenty-two forty-one says, uh, this is Jesus praying in the garden before he's arrested, so we're kind of backtracking. And he withdrew from them, that is from his disciples, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and praying, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Love does not insist on its own way. He wasn't like, oh boy, I get to be crucified, right? He said, if there's a way out of it, but I will yield to your way. I will yield to your will because I love, so I don't insist on my own way. Love is not irritable, right? Easily provoked. Easily provoked. Go to Luke 23, 7 through 11 is what we're going to look at. Luke 23, 7. So after... Sort of Pilate's gang knocked him around a little bit and beat him up. He gets to go visit another ruler. So Luke 23, 7. And when he learned, that is when Pilate learned that he, that's Jesus, when Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign by him. He thought it was kind of like a magic show. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So love is not irritable. Would that not provoke you a little bit? Have the chief priest standing by vehemently accusing you, creating lies about you, and he stays calm? He never even answered. He never even spoke. How hard is that to hold it in? When I even think someone might be upset about something, I can start fighting them in my mind, right? And here Jesus just says nothing. He's not irritable. Love is not resentful. doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Let's look at Luke 23, go to verse 33. 23, 33. It says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love does not keep a record of, it's not, it's not resentful. They're nailing him to a cross. And he says, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Wow. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It's the last one. Look down to verse 39. So he's hanging on the cross. Verse 39, Luke twenty-three, thirty-nine. One of the criminals 
who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, to Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So this one guy's yelling at him, hey, save me, come on, aren't you somebody? He's, he's not even concerned. But the other guy, right, rejoices in the truth. He, right? he says, I am a sinner, I deserve this condemnation. And he humbly asks Jesus, will you remember me? And so Jesus rejoices at the truth that he is the Son of God. He is going to be raised. And so today you're going to be there. You're going to be with me in paradise. Right? He didn't rejoice in wrongdoing. He didn't celebrate the fact these guys had, had done crimes. But he did rejoice in the truth that that man acknowledged his sin and turned to Christ. Isn't that amazing? I never, I'd never done, I'd never looked at that before. That every one of those things was done to Christ. All those bad, you know, rude, arrogant, and he loves, right? We all need Christ's unbelievable love. I couldn't walk through half of those things for even 20 minutes without losing it. And Jesus goes through the whole thing. And we didn't even get into the fact he dies for the sins of the world, absorbs the wrath of the Father, because he didn't insist on his own way. So at the very least, we all desperately need to call out to Jesus. If you've never experienced his love, call out to him for the first time. Just like the thief, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? I want that love. And then we need to just continually call out to Jesus. Fill me with your love. Because whenever those things are happening, it's really hard. It's hard to love your family without boasting and resentful. It's hard to love our world right now. It, it, it's not going to help to use those sorts of weapons, right? To be just as angry and, and upset. So let me show that chart one more time. Right? That was the picture of Christ. Absolutely letting go his freedom. Absolutely not standing up for himself. Didn't even speak a word. Who has now eternal meaning. Eternal community. And I think this is hope for our world. Our, world's gonna, our world right now thinks freedom's where it's all at and it's going to hit the wall and there's no love in that because it's all about self and it's going to chew people up and spit people out. But if we can live this out, if we can live out the love of Christ, it can be like cold water in a desert. Like, wow, what is going on there? These people who have submitted themselves to Christ and submitted themselves to one another, why do they have deep meaning and deep community and those who have submitted themselves to no one are starving for it? So it's going to stand out. It's going to be visible. Can we be patient? Can we live Christ's unbelievable love? Can we stay in it? It's only as we ask for his help. So what we've done, we started this last week, each each of these weeks as we're leading into Easter and we're talking about love, we've put together a little video of, of a missions partner we have. So last week I showed a video from Child Care Worldwide, an opportunity to express Christ's love, uh, serving and really helping struggling kids around the world. All right, we've talked about the breakfast. 
Today we've got a video from an organization called Love in the Name of Christ. And so it's a local ministry that really tags people, God's people, to needs in our community. And they try to bridge those and help churches and people serve. So we're going to look at this video and because uh, I want some tangible things. It's easy, easy to say, love your community and reach out and love your community and go, well, what do I do? So we wanted to show you what's happening with these community partners. But what I don't want is for it to overwhelm you. Like the next six weeks, like I can't serve and he wants me to serve in all these ways and there's six of them. And All I'm hoping is that maybe one thing will grab your heart. You can't serve in them all. You can't do them all. If you try, you feel overwhelmed and defeated. So you might, you know, you might go, I love childcare, what they're doing, that's great, but it doesn't say, eh, I need to do that. And you might say, I hate cooking, so that's not the one, but the Love Inc. one's going to get you, or the foster care one we're going to show in a few weeks, or the pregnancy clinic. Like something might capture your heart, and you go, that's the one I'm going to pray for and get involved in. That's what we're hoping. I don't want you to feel overwhelmed and like, oh no, they're just pressing all these things. Just ask the Spirit, where is he asking you to get in? With prayer, support, serving, just... I don't want this to be overwhelming, but we want real tangible expressions of love. So let me pray, and then we'll we'll show this video. Lord Jesus, thank you for your unbelievable love on the cross, that you endured all those wrong things, all the envy and boastful and arrogance and rudeness and lies. You endured it all, and you did not insist on your own way, but you yielded to the Father. And you, Lord, you should be praised forever. And we love you. And Lord, help us. Help us to live out this love. It feels almost impossible. I know uh, the sin that will creep up in me. So would you help? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us your supernatural love? And then Lord, we want to extend it to this community. Extend it to our workplaces and schools and neighborhoods and, and sports clubs and anything we're a part of, Lord. Would we extend your love into this world that's running from you and needs you so bad? Help us, Lord Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.